Hello, I'm John Duffy, co-host of Consume This. Today, I've got something a bit different for you. It's something we've never done before. It's a bonus episode, recorded live in front of an audience at the City and Sea Museum in Wellington. It's quite a surreal place to record a podcast. There was a giant stuffed lion to the left of the stage, and if you listen really closely about halfway through, you might be able to make out the weird alien exhibit at the back of the room making some noise. None of us could actually figure out how to turn it off, so... It's a panel discussion and a bit of Q&A with the audience, which were held as part of a Consumer NZ stakeholder event. About the event itself, I did a bit of a welcome speech, which I won't subject you to here. Then I handed the mic over to my Consume This co-host and fan favourite, Sophie Richardson. And in three, two, one, you're in the room. And I'd like to introduce my panel members. I've got uh, Paul Smith. Hello, Paul. Yep, we're, yep, we're starting. Thanks. Yep. <laughs> uh, Paul is the Consumer NZ Product Test Manager, um, and he featured in our most recent podcast where we talked about e-waste and repairability, and we had a trip to the tip. Our next panel member is Kenna Dygan. Going to say that with a question mark because I did I say it right? Yes, great. Kenna works for community as a community innovation lead at Wesley Community Action, and her role is to totoko a whole team of people to support communities to spark creative responses to their own issues and opportunities. She has a background in environmental issues and from digging veg gardens to supporting prisons and schools with sustainable food procurement. Our final panel member is Toby Green. Toby also featured in one of our recent podcasts. Uh, Toby is the owner of Elysian Foods, um, and we talked to Toby about how we could kick the plastic. Um, So thank you all for being here, and I think we'd like to kick it off with, do you think that ethical consumption and sustainability is something only available to the privileged and the well-off? Kenna, I'll kick that over to you first. Kia ora koutou. Um, yeah, this is, I, I'm um, standing in here tonight for uh, Makarita and Ruth, who are two of my um, colleagues at Wesley Community Action. And um, when I asked them this question about ethical uh, consumerism or consumption, they really wanted to kind of question the definition of ethical consumerism. Like, what does that mean? And what does it mean to people in communities like Porirua East and Nainai, where we kind of mostly work? And I think one of the things that we started to talk about was, yes, it does. Yes, of course it is really relevant for people in um, lower-income communities or those sorts of communities. Because when we talk about ethical consumerism, sometimes I think people talk about it like we're trying to buy something so that we can stop something bad happening over there. But when we when we talk about this sort of mahi, we're talking about we want to use our money in a way that makes good stuff happen here where we are, right in front of us, with the people that we're with. So that's a huge part of what communities like Purudu East do. They're really focused on how they can grow their own wealth through the way that they make decisions about their money that they spend, the way that they spend their time, who they spend it with and how. So, yeah absolutely relevant yeah do you think it like obviously that's a consideration for them and they you know they're interested is it available though like is there you know what ways are there for people to engage in ethical consumption if they're on a lower income is there are there barriers to entry yeah I think um 
any consumption can't be ethical if it locks out a whole lot of people from being a part of it. So part of it being ethical is that we're all included and we're all able to participate in the economy in one way or another. The way that we kind of work in ethical consumption is to say, what is the collective response? Like how do we collaborate on trying to make, rather than individual choices, how do we actually work together to make systems change? Because that's really the most ethical thing I think that we can be doing is changing the systems that are mm, broken at the moment. So one of our examples is the fruit and veggie co-op, which is really looking at how you know, with supermarket prices being the way that they are, and for some communities with no supermarket actually to go to anyway, how do whānau actually get fresh fruit and vegetables on the table for their kids? Um, and so what we did was to kind of explore, okay, how do we, we've run a food bank for about 30 years in Puerto East, and our question was how do we put this out of business? Like how do we create some sort of system that means that people can get what they need without relying on charity? So we were supported by a whole bunch of different people, including regional public health and Food Together, who do it in Christchurch, to say, how do you do a fruit and veggie co-op that's run by the local community? So we started a little pilot in Porirua East in Cannons Creek, where we would buy fruit and veggies directly from uh, a local growers co-op, NG Marketing, and then kind of pack them up into different packs and then um, sell them on to people in the community. And that was just a little pilot, but pretty soon it grew into something much bigger. And now we do around about nine tonne of fruit and veggies a week across the Wellington region with 11 different communities who are um, get together every week in some sort of miracle of logistics and get that much vegetables into about 11,000 whānau a week. And that's really saying that this isn't about individuals buying their way out of problems. This is about how do we collectively work out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm really grateful because I'm one of those whanos. Um, <laughs> um And I encourage you all to join your local co-op because it's great. It's $15 and you get a whole bunch of fruit and veg and free-range eggs. Yeah, um, and, and like we were saying just before, we were talking about often when we try and solve problems in, for communities that don't have enough um, in terms of money, we think that that solution is just for them and other people can't kind of take advantage of it. But with something like the co-op is awesome because the more people that we can get to buy it, the less the shipping costs and the more fruit and veg everybody gets. Ethical consumption is how do we do things together that we can't do alone mm-hmm. and how this is a good example. Yeah. I think an interesting flow on from that is like, you know, how people know about um, what ethical consumption is or have information to make the right choices. And that's something we touched on with you, Toby, when we had a discussion with, you know, how do you package your, your dips in the right way and like what is the most sustainable option? So do you think there's a better way that we need to facilitate getting information to consumers about, you know, what is out there? What, you know, what is ethical? What is, what's the right way to, understand about packaging you know like what <laughs> yeah that is a good question i'm i'm a little bit uh, worried about the word the, the word ethical here in in relation to packaging um i think if we go back to the to the question the the, the initial question how can we make better packaging decisions in my context the context of a, a small food manufacturing business grappling with trying to do the best for the environment and by extension, making good ethical choices, shall we say. And I think that the challenge is, can that be affordable? Can it be uh, an equal access, equal opportunity type of thing? Because if we want to make uh, food available in, 
in and make ethical choices around how we access that food. Obviously, the the discussion that Kina had is is really apt. But for packaged goods, the goods can only really come in packaging. It's a little bit more tricky. And there's a fair criticism leveled at the nirvana of providing packaged goods, in my case, chilled dips, is that there should be reusable packaging. And that's a really challenging proposition for, for us, uh, for anyone in the food industry, to have that sort of reusable packaging running throughout the, the industry. One option is to go to a refillery shop, but they're quite expensive and, and hard to find. They're, they're really, you know, they're great. There's Hopper in Wellington, which, uh, which I try and we support and we try and use. But to have the, a network of all those types of shops around the country would be a monumental undertaking to try and get through the same volumes that your supermarkets do at the moment. But on the other hand, I was thinking about this. If you think of it in the context of milk, you know, you're starting to see Ekaterhuna milk providing milk in reusable glass bottles. And so it's quite pricey and it's not accessible to all families. But if you look, I, I did some research when they started doing that in the Wellington recently. I, I, I thought, well, that, when I grew up in the UK, almost everyone had their milk delivered in bottles. And I was like, I wonder if that's still happening. And I looked and it is. You know, the, the, there's a huge percentage of the population of the UK are still getting their milk in reusable glass bottles. And I thought, well, that's, that's a, and, and presumably it's really affordable. Otherwise, you know, and it's dispersed throughout the country in all socio-demographic areas. And I thought, well, there's a really interesting and, and providing us an example of a, of a commodity that can be dis- safely distributed as a chilled commodity, perishable, not particularly easy to, to distribute. And there's an example of something that can be done at a nationwide level and provide it at a cost and a cost-effective manner. So there, there, is a, there is hope out there, definitely. <laughs> Do you think that we need more information about those sorts of initiatives, though? And like you know, in particular in your case, you know, we we looked at um, glass packaging, and you know, there's there's a risk with food. Obviously, bits of broken glass might end up in it, or um, you know, it's also um, heavy, so transporting it um, adds to the carbon load. Do we need a campaign to say plastic's not so bad after all? I think uh, information is key here, Sophie. I think that if there was some really we we buy and sell things in dollars. If we had a really transparent and easy to understand uh, measure of environmental footprint in this case, and you could see on the side of a pack, plastic pack, 22 grams, contains 200 grams of product, but you could say that has a unit number of environmental units. So my packaging has 10, that packaging has 12, this one has four, you know, and you would be able to make a really good decision about, oh, it's, it costs six ninety five, and it's coming with 10 carbon credits or not the opposite of credits, debits, should we say. So I, I, I could only see that as a good thing. And it would be with a bit of, you know, nationwide government industry convening. It would be relatively easy to do, I think. Yeah. It, make that uh, sort of obvious to consumers when they're making that choice about with what product to buy is, you know, 
um, not just, you know, plastic glass or cardboard, but, you know, how did it get here and what is it made of and what impacts it going to have at the end of its life? Yeah. yeah. I think that, yeah, we need, yeah, I think you're right, the opposite of carbon credits, carbon carbon debits. <laughs> yeah. How much how much debiting did you do of the environment to make this product? And you could think, you could imagine that they'd all be loaded in the supermarket system. You get to the end of your bill and it would say you've spent $102 and you've spent, shall we say, 52 carbon debits, for mm-hmm. example. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> um, one of the other things is not just, you know, the upfront cost or the upfront purchasing of things but is the ongoing sort of maintenance or reusability of things and that's something you've been particularly involved in Paul and how do we make things that are long lasting and how do we make that choice because sometimes like um, we found out recently in our podcast even the most expensive item was broke so (laughs) it's not even that you know I should spend more and I get a better quality product Um, how how do I know which thing's going to last long um, that's a good question. And before I get into that, can I just say my first job um, when I was 12, 13, my next door neighbor was a milkman. <laughs> he had an electric milk float and I used to ride on the back of it and collect empty glass bottles and deliver filled glass bottles. So the things we think are progress and radical now, mm. well, yeah, 40 years ago, it was just normal. But anyway. Yeah. 40, yeah, 35, 30 years ago. 30 years, let's call it 20 yeah. years, right? And we've gone back to paper bags at the supermarket. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Um, but, but yes, no, um, the idea that, that we, I, I think, um, yeah, we're in a broken system at the moment when it comes to products and appliances and devices and technology. And that, that system says new is not just best, but it's the only option. Um, and somehow we need to shift that to say it's not about how well something works when it's brand new but it's how well something lasts and how well something works over its entire lifetime Mm. as most of you obviously will have listened to the tracker podcast part one and part two is sensational so tune into that tomorrow (laughs) but what we're finding is is actually a lot of the manufacturers don't care they don't care how long stuff lasts because once they've sold it that's it And what we need to do somehow is bring that back around to say, you know, actually, we should get back to this idea that we, we need to keep on to, we need to keep hold of things. We need to treat old stuff as being things that we value. And actually, newer is not better. Um, one thing we saw from that is that there is another way. And actually, the stuff that you buy that can then be refurbished and resold, um, there's a route to do that. But we need to force that to happen because it's not going to happen by itself. It's often not very clear where you take those things, right? Like, you know, who do you take your broken things to to get them repaired? Is it just because I think most people would think immediately, oh, the manufacturer, then it's outside of warranty. Okay, so then who? And then how do I get it there if it's a large fridge? Um, there's lots of sort of steps in the process. And I guess, you know, what you're saying is we need to make it easy for people to to do that, right? To make the, it an easier choice to repair rather than replace. Yeah, exactly. And and the whole system seems to be built around repair being the not even a second class option. It's the third class option, right? And, and I can see that. I mean, I'm a consumer. I buy stuff. If something breaks, if my mixer breaks, I take it back. I want to bake cakes, so I want a new one. <laughs> so I'm really happy if yeah. the um, if the shop says that's great, that's broken. I'll give you a new one. Mm. But 
in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, but they're going to do the right thing with that, right? Mm. They're going to they're going to repair it. Someone else is going to get that because it can't be that difficult to fix. But what we need to do is is build that culture that says we can fix it, we should resell it. Actually, buying something that has been fixed, refurbished, resold is a good thing to do. And it doesn't mean that that everything's going to get more expensive. Somebody said that to me the other day. I said, oh, doesn't, doesn't this mean that everything's going to be really expensive? Because the, the expensive stuff's the good stuff. So, no, it's not. Yeah. It's just refocusing what you spend your money on. Mm. Do you think, Kenna, you know, the communities you work with, do you see them wanting to, you know, have these things repaired? Like, you know, or are they sort of more consumptive in their... I don't even think that's a word. Never mind. They um, <laughs> um, buy more often because it's cheap and then it breaks and then they have to buy a new one. Or, you know, what's the sort I, of vibe? I'm not sure I can speak to, you know, what everybody's purchasing decisions are in the communities that we work in. But I think there's a big variety, like there is in any community. that Some people want to have the new thing and lots of the new thing. And some people want to... Um, fix, you know, they get real satisfaction out of making do and um, sharing and working out what to do. I think one of the things in the community, um, you know, we work in a, you know, have a community house as a food bank and things like that. And one of the things that we really find really irritating is when people use donating as an excuse for buying terrible stuff and running it into the ground and then feeling like, oh, we'll just donate it and then we can feel ethical about it. I mean, I've gone through, you know, odd socks and things like that that people have donated. What? Mm. We don't want odd socks. <laughs> Nobody wants odd socks. And it's Strange part of the same system, right? Yeah. It's saying that I can just buy whatever I want, whenever I want, and then I can feel okay about it by just making it somebody else's problem at the end, mm. whether that's donating or whether that's um, chucking it in the river. <laughs> mm. I don't know. Yeah, it's sort of offloading that responsibility onto the the donated company, even though, you know, it's like, well, I haven't really donated it because we've now had to go and get rid of it ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you, you all would drive past Salvation Armies on the mm. Sunday and see in the rain mm. boxes and boxes of mostly broken stuff. Mm. So I think if, if yeah, we Paul talk goes about past value, you know, like you were saying, <laughs> talk about value of how to um, – how to really value the things that we buy and get some joy out of repairing them. That would be awesome. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's um, fabulous, and that was all my questions, unless um, anyone has any further comments on their thoughts about uh, sustainability and consumption. Um, We're also going to throw it out to all of you here. Um, If you have any questions for our panel, uh, the lovely Gemma here in the green outfit, uh, we'll be bringing the microphone to you. Does anyone like to ask the panel a question? Hello, it's me again. Remember, John Duffy from the start of the episode. I'm just going to cut back in again here. Um, unfortunately, right as we're about to take the first question, the power cable fell out of the back of the audience mic. Lesson learned, always tape in the cables. We plugged it back in for the next question, but for this one, I'll fill you in. It was asked by Tamara, who actually featured in Consume This Series 1, in episode 6 that was cheerily titled Can You Afford to Die? Her question was The packaging industry probably wouldn't like this but what do you think of the idea of standardising packaging for foodstuffs so that they can be far more easily reused? Uh, well, I think uh, I'm all for it, personally. I, I, and I, I, don't, I don't know if you're correct to say that the food industry wouldn't like it. 
I, I do honestly think there's a, there's a, within New Zealand, I can't speak for some of the overseas companies that, um, drop products into this market, but certainly within the, the companies in my sector, there's a definite willingness to embrace that sort of thing. It would be a huge upfront investment, but again, think milk bottles, you know, how that's eminently possible. You think of, uh, glass bottles with, uh, Coca-Cola and lemonade and how they had used to have a 10 cent um, deposit scheme and those sorts of things, which still exist in South Australia, I understand. So something similar along those lines, I'd be for it. And I, and I think there would be general willingness to see it or experiment with it at least. Fabulous. Anyone else? Phil Squires, uh, Sustainability Trust. Oh, I need to move over here. Yeah. The question is, what, what, about, what about quality? I guess when, when um, I buy a cheap product from unnamed stores, I expect it to last you know, at least five years, I guess is probably what, what I expect. When it doesn't last for that period of time, I take it back and I have an expectation that um, that will have an effect on um, increasing the, that product quality. And Paul, we were just talking about this before, but if there's no particular method for tracking those uh, poor quality products through and what the actual issue was. Um, uh, I guess what's your comments about about actually getting some uh, getting that feedback to the to the producers to actually produce a better quality product? Yeah, that's a really good point. And as a as a product designer, I sort of lament the idea that we don't make anything here anymore like that. Right? Fisher and Paykel don't make things here. Um, they were probably the last of the appliance manufacturers. Um, so we've lost that direct link to say here's what's going wrong, here's what we need to improve, and we can actually improve that in our manufacturing. So we're a a nation of importers and distributors. But that doesn't mean that's lost because where we need to get to is this understanding, and we've started doing it. I mean, we've started collecting this data. It's not difficult to do is to ask people to say, have you got a product that's gone wrong? Yes. What went wrong with it? Oh, it was my washing machine and the seal failed. So great. So we start collecting that data and then you can say, actually, there's a real problem with so-and-so's washing machines that the seals are breaking. And if you expand that into the, the distributors and say, well, you, you, distribute, you distribute these, these washing machines, we can tell you that the seals are breaking, so you need to get that back and say, well, we won't do that or we'll change or we'll feed that back to our manufacturers. And we're finding through our contacts, that some of them are doing it. Unfortunately, the ones that are doing it are the ones that probably sell the most expensive machines. But you'd probably expect that, right? They're the ones who invest in research and development. The ones that don't are the ones that are selling cheap machines. And they're the ones that you really need to improve. So I guess I'm getting to a rambly point that says, I don't have an answer to that because that's the system that we want to create, right? That you find out what's going wrong you can fix it and you can make that available. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to change the design and make that product more expensive. It just means that you have to recognize that in the design. And maybe the distributor here who doesn't have an influence just says, well, I just need to import some of those parts because I know those are going to go wrong. And I know that the repairers who are going to repair these things need those parts so I can make that easy for them. Uh, I had a question which is about the sort of the delivery method for foodstuffs and I guess listening to you two guys I was going oh there's this great food and veggie you know fruit and veggie distribution co-op then there's these people who are making these really great dips and there's people who are making sort of other commodities that people want to eat and consume is there any kind of plan to expand it into your whole grocery basket you know that you could use that bulk buying power to be able to get 
you know, like every week you'd get a dip in your pack and every week you'd get sort of certain meat products. And it's it's kind of like my food bag and those guys do it in a sense that that you get a meal, you know, sort of meal for four or whatever it is, and they can deliver um, chilled goods and all sorts of other goods as well to your door. And I wonder whether that bulk buying power would be a great way of just circumventing the supermarkets and going, oh, well, we'll cut them out of the chain. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I think um, we've just recently introduced eggs into the co-op with the real focus around how you get protein, low-cost protein into people's lives and that's something that we're really exploring about how to to do that but I think for us what we often talk about is um you know that good food is also food that helps us achieve all sorts of different things and so you can sometimes get that scale question which I think is really important because obviously there are scale things that make things cheaper for sure but how do we also that with the, the local thing of also I know my communities because we all know each other and we can drop off our food to each other when we need to and things like that. So how do we make those food systems that really work? So well, at the moment we're looking for um, somebody to do home kill and so that we can get meat into people's um, co-op packs as one of the main costs that people have in community. Yeah. So you can hear me. Good. Thank you. Uh, so uh, incentives are important, aren't they? There's a company in America that uh, rents out carpets. And the, the theory there, well, not theory, the practice is that um, carpets are a dreadful thing, right? Like um, nowadays they're made of all sorts of nasty stuff and they end up in landfills and all the rest of it. This company, which is a huge company, it's not minor, you basically lease a carpet for 20 years and at the end of the 20 years they take it back from you. And they take it apart and, you know, um, don't recycle it, they physically pull it apart and reuse the inputs. My point is that if you look at the data, subscriber companies are one of the fastest growing types of business models in the world, right? So you've got obvious ones like Netflix and so on, but um, below that you've got lots of other subscriber things. So if you think about the incentives, then what's wrong with, for example, hiring, leasing a washing machine? So the incentive is on the company to keep that thing going for as long as it can, for example. It's not the answer, but I think it could be a serious part of the answer because it creates a different revenue flow. I'm just interested in your thoughts about whether you're seeing that in a practical sense when the data shows it. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and that, that carpet company, I wish I could remember. The name has completely gone from my head, but um, there's an amazing book by the guy who made that change. It's absolutely astounding. It's about, um, I think it's called Mid-Course Correction. And it's great. It's like how he had this this dawning, this realization that, you know, we're breaking the world here and I need to fix it. And he did. <laughs> but that aside, um, I couldn't agree more. And I think that whole sharing, leasing economy is an amazing way to push back the responsibility for durable, repairable products back to the manufacturer. Because if I never own it, it's not my responsibility if it goes wrong. It's your responsibility because you still own it. And I think it's great. We don't see it enough here, and um, I don't know why. It's been a long time, but I grew up in the UK, and everybody leased his cars. You lease a car for three or five years, and you, have, you maintain it, you service it, and then you give it back and you get a new one. And that company is responsible for the car the whole way through. We buy really, really old, really, really crappy cars, and then we complain when they all go wrong. <laughs> it's not right. And that, that sort of creativity could also go into um, other ways to meet your needs. I think, you know, you were talking about the sharing economy and I think that's a huge part of this consumption problem that we've got is that we all think we all need one thing 
in our house for just us to use once a year or like I have a hedge but I don't have any hedge trimmers and every time we have to trim it we have to find somebody who wants to swap it for something else and that's really um, a huge part of this question I think. Definitely. Do we have any other questions from the audience? No? Fabulous. Thank you all for um, being my willing participants and also Kenna in particular for short notice subbing in for your colleagues. Um, Very much appreciated. Um, This was a really interesting discussion and made me feel reinforced about my the consume this podcast actually because we touched on all of these topics and including the sharing economy where we talked about um, sharing cars and the Newtown Tool Library. So it's that giving consumers the information to make better choices um, part of things. So I'm really grateful for all of your efforts and for coming tonight. So thank you. And that's it. We're out of the line in Alien Field, Wellington City and Sea Museum and back into the boring normal studio. A big thanks to Sophie for hosting the panel. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did. We'll be looking for more opportunities to bring you bonus episodes and live recordings in the future. But for now, keep your eyes on the podcast feed. There are still a couple more episodes of season two on the way. Remember, you can always get in touch with Team Consume This via podcasts. That's podcasts with an S on the end at consumer.org.nz. See ya. Hello, I'm Abby Darman and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. Right now, literally, as we speak, we're working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September So please, if you can, help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.